0: Listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.
1: Well, hello and good afternoon. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Let's get a quick look at what's going on in the campaign trail today. The Liberal government saying that if re elected, if they form government again, they will commit to achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2050. While well, the party's also promising to pass legislation to help businesses and workers make the transition to clean energy. Bit of trouble here, no price tag, none, nothing, zip, zilcho. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau is going to hold a media availability later on today in Burnaby, British Columbia. Now that is, of course, the riding that is currently held by NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. So a bit of, I'm here on your turf, and I'm going to flip you the political bird. And of course, you heard in the news that... Justin Trudeau will be sitting down with Donna Friesen, the anchor of Global National, and that'll happen this afternoon, and we'll have that for you as soon as that interview is completed here on Global News Radio. Of course, one of the big things we're talking about today is the debate, and the federal election debate on foreign policy has now been deep-sixed because the liberal leader, Justin Trudeau, refuses to participate. Mr. Trudeau will take part in two televised debates organized by an independent commission that the Liberal government established. There's going to be one in English and another in French. Mr. Trudeau will also participate in another debate hosted by French-language network TVA, and that is not part of the media consortium, which is affiliated with the two commission debates. So to sum up, We got ourselves a commission that the Liberals said, we're going to put this into place because we don't like the way that Stephen Harper gamed the system. In fact, here's the quote from the Liberal campaign spokesperson about the cancellation of this federal debate on foreign policy, saying, this commission was established after the last election where the governing party tried to game the system and make sure the fewest number of Canadians engaged in the debates. We think that's wrong. That is the quote from the liberal campaign spokesperson about the fact that Mr. Trudeau is only appearing in two debates which are sponsored by said commission, which is part of the actual consortium. So we said, well, will get this independent commission together and we'll do that, and that'll take care of all of those problems, except for it looks like it does nothing but actually favor the incumbent, favor who's in government, and then at the same time, these same people on this same commission say, ah, Maxime Bernier, yeah, that seems like a good idea, having you on the debate. Why don't you come on? Why don't you bring along the uh, signatories that uh, helped you get official party status too, the representatives from Soldiers of Odin and all the rest of the far-right clowns? It's extraordinarily dangerous what's happening in this country because of that. And because of what's happening with this debate, Mr. Joseph Trudeau can say, well, I don't, I don't want to talk about foreign policy. I only need to do two debates. I'll do two in French and one in English, and the rest of the country can whatever. Forget about it. Forget about it. So let's check those polls, shall we? You heard in the news about the Ipsos poll, but let's begin with the survey conducted by Abacus Data, and it looked at reaction to Trudeau's terrible week in the last week. The impressions of the electoral nation as a whole it shows that the scandal may not, for now, have a big impact, certainly not as much as the opponents of the liberals would have hoped. 42% say they polled, polled by Abacus, said they weren't really bothered by seeing the PM caught in brownface and blackface. 34% said they don't like it, but they accept the apology, they're over it. A quarter two-thirds of whom are conservative voters, say they were truly offended that it damaged their view of the Prime Minister. Now, this is interesting. Among voters identifying invisible minorities, this block was nine points more likely than non-visible minorities and older people to be bothered by the scandal. And for younger voters younger than 30 that same 9 point difference is applied so people of color more outrage obviously that makes sense and younger people obviously more impacted than older people and perhaps that's simply because when you're younger you haven't accumulated a whole list of dumb stuff that you've done over the years because let me tell you for free and I'm not <laughs> I'm not in any way defending Justin Trudeau but eventually you get to a point in your life where you look in the closet and you go whoa There's a lot of bones in there. Lots of bones. Now, before you make up your mind about this blackface scandal, and I refuse to say brownface. I know I read it earlier, but to me, it's, and I've said this before, it's blackface. I don't know why we call it brownface. I don't think there's such a thing. But the poll from Global News, commissioned from Global News by Ipsos, shows that the Conservative Party has now gained a four-point lead over the Liberals, according to that poll. That latest Ipsos poll... Shows a 36% respondents would vote for Tories and 32 for the Libs. And that is a loss of three points for the Libs. Uh, Andrew Shearer was at a restaurant in Niagara Falls today. He was at a news conference where he was standing beside a giant sign that said, Eat. I don't know if you've seen. Take a look at this. It's on my Twitter. A Carter Global. It's just a... I, who decided that you are just going to stand him beside a giant sign that says, Eat. Oh, by the way, he's going to cut red tape. How's he going to do that? We'll cut red tape by 25% over four years.
0: And we'll put in place a two-for-one rule on regulations. That means for every new regulation we
1: put in place, we have to get rid of two. Sure, because regulations are bad. Regulations just, we what we got to get rid of these two other, we brought in a new regulation, so we're just going to take out these whole regulations about hand-washing. They're gone. We just, we can't have too many Regulations. I have a green update. The federal Greens are proposing to reimagine Canada Post using infrastructure to serve communities in different ways and to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Elizabeth May saying the Greens would update Canada Post's fleet to electric vehicles. Okay, I got that. We'll follow along. Expensive, but I got it. But how about this? The Greens also want to give postal carriers the mandate to check in on people with mobility issues or who live alone, particularly during extreme heat and storms. Hey, who's at the front door? It's the mailman checking on Grandma. Well, that's creepy is what that is. That's just plain creepy. That's your election roundup for today. Let's get to some local news now where TTC Chair Jay Robinson is pushing for the installation of enforcement cameras on the exterior of streetcars. This in the wake of a commuter being hit by a dump truck dump truck, pardon me, as she stepped off a Bathurst, Bathurst streetcar last week. Priya Sam is a global news reporter and covered a press conference just a little while ago from uh, Ms. Robinson. Hi, Priya. Good afternoon, Alan. What is the push here? Some kind of cameras? They really think that's going to make a difference?
2: Right. And so they're saying, let's have cameras on the outside of streetcars. That way, uh, if cars don't obey the rule that you have to stop behind a streetcar, they can record their license plates and they can find them. So right now, there already is... Uh, the, the ability to find people who are not obeying this rule, of course, but it's just not really being enforced. It's not really a priority for police.
1: So, are we talking like a red light camera, like that would just, it would, if you did it, it was an infraction, and you'd automatically get a fine.
2: Exactly. That's right. Um, The biggest issue right now is that in order for them to do that, the Highway Traffic Act needs to be amended. Uh, So the province needs to get on board with uh, uh, amending the act to allow these uh, traffic, these security cameras on streetcars. And it's Still unclear whether the province is ready to do that. The TTC is on board. Uh, it seems the city is on board as well. And, of course, there uh, now are some councillors who are on board, uh, some other, some opposition MPPs who are on board as well. Uh, still unclear, though, how the Conservatives are going to respond to this request.
1: Did the TTC provide any evidence? I mean, obviously, we have this accident most recently, but do we have any evidence that this problem is worse or growing?
2: So the statistic they released to us today was that between 2014 and 2016, 26 people were hit by either bikes or cars while entering or exiting streetcars.
1: Are they going to find bicycles too? How are they going to do that?
2: Interesting. So that question was raised at the press conference today, uh, and they basically kind of brushed it off saying, well... If uh, uh, cyclists are uh, have been a problem in some of these accidents, but they say the injuries are most serious when vehicles are involved, so they're not as concerned about cyclists.
1: Priya Sam is a global news reporter covering this push from the city and the TTC to change the Highway Traffic Act. Thank you, Priya. Appreciate you being on the program. Anytime. A uh, quick update. You might have heard this, that the Minister of Transportation was speaking earlier this morning, and we didn't get a reaction from her on camera to this proposed change from the city, but what Caroline Mulroney did announce is that as of September 26, there will be an update in terms of speed limits on a series of highways, Highway 402 from London to Sarnia, the QEW from St. Catharines to Hamilton, and Highway 417 from Ottawa to Ontario. The speed limit will go up an entire whopping 10 kilometers an hour. From the current posted limit that nobody drives of 100 to 110, which also no one will drive, it will be 130. So essentially we've gone from 120 to 130 in reality. I mean, that's the fact of the matter, and you know it, and I know it. And regardless of whether or not the police officer pulls you over and gives you a ticket, you're going to say, wait a minute, come on, there's a 20-kilometer-an-hour buffer built into this. The police say there isn't, so be careful. Welcome back. An update on the situation with QP school support staff who are announcing now the first phase of job action begins next week on Monday. No unpaid work, which means, for example, clerical staff won't start early to find supply teachers. No cleaning of the halls. ECEs won't go to parent meetings, so on and so forth. Here is Laura Walton of QP talking about this job action.
3: Early childhood educators are expected to stay after school for parent-teacher interviews as an expectation of their role, but they're not paid for that, nor are they given lewd time for that. Uh, Many are coming in early or staying late in order in ECE and EA to prep for their students because they're not given prep time during the school day uh, to get materials and learning tools ready. Uh, We have clerical folks that are getting up at 5 in the morning uh, in order to secure replacement staff. That's a task that should be uh, being completed by the administration but has been downloaded onto our staff who are now cut even finer uh, with less hours than they had previous.
1: That is the head of QP locally talking about job action, which is slated to begin on Monday. The Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce, has issued a statement, quote, I urge QP and the employers to come back to the table and direct their efforts towards reaching a deal as quickly as possible. Here's QP's reaction to the statement from the minister.
3: His response is that I've served notice to strike. Under no terms have I served anything yet. We will be serving something tomorrow but it will not be a notice to strike. It will be a notice of job action, which is allowed under the School Board Collective Bargaining Act. Our goal is to maintain services for our students, and I call on him to ensure the stability that he so desires by funding the education system properly.
1: And that is where we sort of differ there. The minister saying that they have issued a, a notice to strike, whereas the they're saying, "Well, no, no, it's a it's a notice of job action." So you can parse that any way you like it. But obviously, we are um, we are on the road to major disruption in the education system at two o'clock today. O S S T F, the high school teachers' their union will update in terms of what they plan to do in terms of upcoming job action and ongoing negotiations. Stay tuned to Global News Radio for more on that. National Pharmacare is a promise that is being bandied about. Everyone from the Liberals to the Greens to the NDP say they have an idea on how to do it. Canadians Canadians overwhelmingly, however, support the idea. That, according to a new poll that's been commissioned by Heart and Stroke and the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions, almost 9 in 10 Canadians agree Canada should have a National Pharmacare program. Manny Arango is Director of Policy, Advocacy, and Engagement at Heart & Stroke and joins me on the line. Hi, Manny. Hello. Good to
4: talk to you today, Alan.
1: So what did the poll find in terms of what Canadians want? And more interestingly, did anybody inform respondents what it would cost?
4: So, uh, absolutely. There's two interesting findings from the poll results. One, as you mentioned, 90% of Canadians think the federal government should ad- adopt a national pharma care program and that everyone across the country should have equal access to drugs. That's a really key finding. And then as well, we found that there was a lot more concerns about affordability and cost of drugs than we might have expected. So for example, a quarter of Canadians said that they decided not to fill or renew a renewal prescription because of the cost or to try to make the prescription last longer. Uh, Another quarter of Canadians said that um, uh, in their household there was someone that had hesitated about quitting or changing a job because they were afraid of losing their prescription drug coverage. And then a third of Canadians had said that at one point or another in the last year did experience some type type of household budgetary stress due to the cost of prescription drugs. So, um, you know, here's the reality. We are the only developed country with a universal health care system, that doesn't have a universal uh, prescription drug coverage, pharmacare type program, and we have one of the most expensive uh, drug coverage regimes in the world. So we really got to change this. We we need a national pharmacare program.
1: There have been calls for it for so long, but the difficulty on one level is just the dollars and cents, and then the more difficult program possibility here, and and Mr. Trudeau is going to find this out if he does win again and try and carry through with his promises, is that the federal government has to get a deal with the provinces, and we have such a fractious system, and it doesn't look like there's much common ground between the provinces and the federal government, no matter who would be leading the feds.
4: Well, okay, so you uh, know i think my understanding is that how this would work is that the hopefully the provinces and the federal government will kind of come up with an agreement about how this would be done and the federal government would offer put money on the table to those provinces that are interested in participating in a national pharmacare program if one province says they absolutely don't want to participate well you know, that's their call, and they're accountable to the people from that province for not doing so. Um, it's, you know, uh, we the federal government cannot force the provinces to do it, uh, but the, uh, we have seen in the past when you have these type of types of cost-shared programs, in the federal provincial programs, that once the government puts the money on the table, many provincial governments will be hesitant to say, no, I, I'm going to leave that on the table. Uh, so I, I, think, um, I think over time, uh, provinces will come on board, but it won't happen overnight.
1: Manny Arango is with Heart and Stroke Foundation talking about this new poll that shows that Canadians overwhelmingly want a national pharmacare program. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Still with health, Toronto's Board of Health has voted to recommend that provincial, the province amp up its immunization rates by doing the following. Withdrawing or eliminating reasons to be exempt from vaccines for religious or conscious reasons. Now, dozens of protesters gathered in the rotunda at City Hall to oppose these measures, which see the city asking the province to consider these changes. The province has said it's not considering doing this at all. But how, as journalists, do we cover this? Because if you saw Global News last night, Matthew Bingley did a great job in this story, reporting on the issue itself and also giving voice to those who showed up at the rotunda, showed up at the committee meeting to say, I'm opposed to this and the following reasons I'm opposed to it. So how, as journalists, do we cover it? There's an interesting thread I spotted on Twitter from Global Mail health reporter Carly Weeks, who, quote, said, I didn't cover this hearing, but from past experiences, it's a tricky area. Anti-vaccination advocates say things that are not true. And as a reporter, you strive to present all sides of an issue. But when it comes to vaccines, this leads to false balance. Carly Weeks joins me on the, on the phone now. Carly, thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me. How difficult is this when you're a health reporter to try and find balance without amplifying things that are just simply not correct?
5: It's very tricky, especially in cases like this where we're talking about a debate that is playing out in the public. And a lot of the things that are being said by anti-vaccination advocates are very sensational. They do uh, make for very compelling sort of headlines and photos and things like that. You know, if you were downtown yesterday, as I was, I saw several of these individuals walking around with very graphic signs and T-shirts. And so as a journalist, we have to ask ourselves, how do we present these things? Because we know the facts show that vaccines are safe and effective, and that the rhetoric around the anti-vaccination movement relies on spreading false messages. That is how they get people to listen to them. And studies show that even exposing people to messages about things that are false, such as anti-vaccination, makes them more likely to believe those messages. So even though you might be just quoting someone in a story, you could actually be furthering the cause of these individuals, granting them legitimacy, and exposing them to a wide
4: audience.
1: Here is a woman at the hearing yesterday speaking to the city council um, committee about this. She identifies herself as a mother of a vaccine-injured child. And here is what she has to say about where she gets her facts as opposed to where, for example, Carly, you get your facts.
2: There is no study that a doctor has access to that I don't also have access to. So to be like, oh, you know your Google research. It's 2019, there's no secret studies. There's no, like there's everything's peer reviewed. We have access to all of this information. So it, it's, that's really unfortunate to try to be like, oh, you know, because you found that on Google. Yeah, because we don't walk around with like 10,000 books in our trunks anymore. That's where, it's a PDF version of a book. That's what's frustrating.
1: That is a woman speaking at Toronto City Hall yesterday opposed to changes that would eliminate exemptions for vaccines. Carly Weeks is on the phone, Global Mail's health reporter. And Carly, what do you make of that? And just maybe comment on, you know, facts found via Google. Yeah,
5: that's a great point. And, you know, we should say, you know, the government's um, involved here so the toronto city council there's also the government of new brunswick they did recently have these hearings and it's important to let people have their say you know it's free expression they're allowed to have their opinions but again it's, it's how we frame it sort of in the in the public sphere um you know as journalists so wh- when this woman is saying you know we have the studies we have the research I- i've done uh, a lot of extensive reporting on the anti-vaccination movement they rely on you know flawed data they misinterpret results Um, And they basically uh, skew a a lot of data. There's also a lot of researchers who get paid by anti-vaccination advocates to do research that basically comes up with the results that they're looking for, i.e. that there might be some sort of toxicity in vaccines. These things simply aren't true. And the facts speak for themselves. I mean, no one, uh, smallpox has been eradicated, a disease that once killed many many children it's now gone uh, you know look at the the ravages of polio they've been largely eliminated from places like north america but now in, in you know in the developed world or the, the in the developing world they would clamor for these vaccines you know there's people uh, h- thousands of children that have been dying in madagascar their parents don't
1: I think we might have lost Carly there, we were talking to her as she was actually on a GO train, so we were, uh, we, we, we sort of had a feeling that that might have dropped out, but that was uh, Carly Weeks from the Global Mail Health Reporter with some great analysis there, and interesting isn't it? To think about how do we present that as journalists, and I think some will be critical to say, no, you should just write up, straight up, just report what they say. But that is amplifying misinformation that then you see used again and again, and it becomes this circle, it becomes this feedback loop, and it is so dangerous to public health. to the program. A bit of an update on a story that we were bringing you just in the last segment. This has just happened. You may have heard that QP has announced that there will be job action beginning on Monday as support workers in schools begin to withdraw extra service, what they consider to be unpaid service, and that's one of the main issues in this dispute. And the Minister of Education had put out a release uh, not too long ago, just about two hours ago, that said uh, in, in part, you know, we wish that the union would come back to to the bargaining table and said, you know, that it, it its statement of intended strike was wrong. Well, <laughs> that QP, QP said, hey, we, we didn't say anything about a strike. Okay. And so now, just now, popping right into the old inbox of 1231, Stephen Lecce, Minister of Education, issued the following statement of QP to break off talks with employers and give notice of intended job action, not strike. Words are important, government people. Other big stories around the world, in a major blow to Prime Minister Boris Johnson, Britain's highest court has ruled that his decision to prorogue Parliament for five weeks in the crucial countdown to Brexit was simply illegal.
0: The court is bound to conclude, therefore, that the decision to advise Her Majesty to prorogue Parliament was unlawful.
2: This was the final unanimous decision read out by Supreme Court President Brenda Hale, saying that Johnson's decision to suspend Parliament unjustifiably impeded lawmakers from carrying out their constitutional functions. The landmark decision immediately prompted calls for Johnson to quit. Scottish National Party legislator Joanna Cherry. He should have the guts for once to do the decent thing and resign. Johnson himself
0: reacted with disappointment at the final decision. strongly disagree with this uh, decision of the of the supreme court i have utmost respect for our judiciary
2: karen chamas
0: london
1: you know if i if i was boris johnson i'd just go full trudeau on this i'm pissed off at myself just go with that maybe still in europe and this one's got ramifications for us all around the world especially here in canada google has won its fight ...against tougher right-to-be-forgotten rules after Europe's top court said on Tuesday it does not have to remove links to sensitive personal data worldwide. And that has rejected a French demand. The case has been seen as a test of whether Europe can extend its laws beyond its borders and whether individuals can demand the removal of personal data from Internet search results without stifling free speech and legitimate public interest. Basically, it's like this. If I'm accused of something and it's entirely incorrect, but yet it becomes a viral thing and then it's on the web, but I didn't do anything wrong, but it just sits there, it's there for all time and forever and ever, amen, anybody searches my name, that thing comes up. Well, should I not have the right for that to be forgotten? According to the top court in Europe, no, you don't have that right. In Washington, seven Democrats have now published an op-ed in the Washington Post saying it's impeachable if U.S. President Donald Trump did indeed pressure Ukraine's president to investigate rival Joe Biden for political benefit. The White House continues to refuse to release the whistleblower complaint about this July phone call. As
6: he arrived at the United Nations this morning, President Trump was bombarded with questions about his July phone call with the president of Ukraine and the growing swell among House Democrats to move forward on an impeachment inquiry.
0: I think it's ridiculous. It's a witch hunt. Uh, I'm leading in the polls. They have no idea how they stop me. The only way they can try is through impeachment.
6: The president once again forcefully defending his conversation with the Ukrainian leader, saying he did not put pressure on him to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden and his son.
0: That call was perfect. It couldn't have been nicer.
6: Karen Travers, ABC News, traveling with the president in New York.
1: See, if it gets worse for Donald Trump, I just, I just suggest maybe a quick Trudeau thing. I'm pissed off at myself. Just go with that. I want to update you on a story we talked about yesterday. This world wrestling person, this wrestler, Lacey Evans. I don't know if you know. I know nothing about wrestling. Turns out, though, and this is weird. I did not know this. Wrestling videos are scripted. What? Turns out. Not only are the wrestling videos scripted, but it turns out I want to play a little. I played this yesterday. Here it is. You might have heard this.
3: That's not a citation, is it?
1: This is. No, it's a violation ticket for speeding. This is Lacey Lacey. talking to a cop in the Edmonton area. You know who I am?
3: Well, I'm Lacey Evans, and I do not rate that ticket. So you can go ahead. Lacey Evans. WWE superstar and you should know exactly who I am.
1: Sorry, ma'am, I don't uh, hey, so here's the ticket information right. on the back so you've got of the It turns out both Lacey said this thing was scripted and then Edmonton Police came out and said yeah, it, it was actually they had you know it was a conversation. I think I think he she was actually pulled over and given a ticket, but then there was a whole thing where it was like, Well, let's do this bit. And so it was all staged. So again, shocked. I'm shocked. Wrestling is scripted in spain a supreme court judge i'm going to skip this one i was going to talk about francisco franco but nobody cares i want to talk about weed let's get to weed quickly because we're running out of time here so here's the story a guy writes in to say look i uh i I went to work and i had some weed in my bag and it was just there and i was planning to go to the cottage afterwards and unbeknownst to me, a co-worker must have smelled this because within minutes I was called to HR. The HR rep said, you got any weed in your bag? I admitted I did. Uh, I didn't think it would be an issue. The HR rep informed me I was in violation of workplace health and safety policy. I was being fired for just cause. Now, can they do that? Is this? Well, here's Andrew Goldberg, associate with Sanfero uh, LLP, on the morning show, talking about whether or not this is cause for firing?
0: Well, the simple answer is no. In that circumstance, they cannot dismiss that employee for cause for bringing cannabis to the workplace.
1: That's the straight-out, they can't. What if in, it's... in
0: that situation, they can't. I mean, the okay. reality is, you know, the simple answer is that employers should treat recreational cannabis much like alcohol, both in terms of possession and use. So what that means is, you know, sure, recreational cannabis is now legal in Canada. Employers still have every right to prohibit both the possession and use of cannabis in the workplace.
1: That is Andrew Goldberg talking about this particular case, but I will add to it quickly that what the law says here is that, you know, employers can have these policies, but they must be communicated directly directly and it must be clear and understood that the employee knows that there is a policy that a if you bring that to work you will be terminated and without evidence of that you can't get away you can't get away with this firing and that's why in this particular case this guy seems like he's got a case to be able to sue for wrongful dismissal interesting though is we develop new rules and regulations surrounding a legal cannabis environment Welcome back. Time to check in on our ongoing series on failure to launch for kids and why kids are having such trouble these days getting up and out of the house and on to a productive lives of their own. one of the reasons might be the supports that we give or do not give to kids as they grow up, especially when they're in high school. Megan Coley is a Global News National online journalist and has been part of this ongoing series, has written it, and it is on globalnews.ca right now, and she's in studio. Thanks so much for being here.
6: Thanks for having me.
1: What do we know about school resource, especially when it comes to school counselors, helping kids figure out what it is they want to do?
6: Yeah. So we know, first of all, that counselors are really the front line of defense for career planning. Um, and we also know that there often aren't enough counselors in a school. And when they are there, they rarely have the resources to perform efficiently. So the stats are sparse. The data is sparse across the country. Um, but we do know that in Ontario, the numbers are not very good. Um, according to one recent study the ratio of student-to-counselors is 396 to 1 in Ontario high schools. That's the average right now.
1: And and what evidence do we have that these counselors are really making that much of a difference?
6: Oh, yeah. We have tons of research to show that um, early intervention from counselors specifically, this is somebody different from your teacher, is a really amazing tool to help students succeed. So... You know, one study found that group counseling intervention significantly improved things like organizational skills, time management skills, and motivation to succeed. Another study found that high school students who have at least one interaction with their school counselor are significantly more likely to apply to post-secondary schools than those who didn't have any contact. So we know that they're making a difference.
1: So is it a question then of more funding? Because certainly if we look at Ontario, we're seeing a cut. And I know the, the Ford government doesn't like that term. They like to think about as reallocation of resources. So let's give them that. Okay, we're reallocating resources, but we are taking it away from that counselor side and, you know, applying it more to, let's say, math.
6: Yeah, I think funding is interesting, but it's also where that money is directed, even when the funding is there. So ultimately, this actually comes down to the school boards. Um, so the provinces can allocate the funds. Uh, but unless the province sets a mandate specifically saying, you know, this set of money is specifically for hiring and providing counselors with more resources, um, then it's really up to the count, the, the school board what they want to do with that money. So some school boards can get the funding and decide not to use it for counselors.
1: And, and that- that's what ends up happening when you start talking to the province. You say, hey, you know, Minister of Education, we need more money for this. So, well, that's not my decision. My decision is to give the parcel of money to the school board. The school board decides then.
6: Well, this is the issue because nobody seems to really be taking responsibility for who decides where the funding goes and how counselors can can get the resources that they need. So it's kind of the blame seems to be being tossed back and forth.
1: And this is it's something that I, you know, now I have a real First-hand experience with with a with a daughter in high school, I you know, and I'm looking at you know the age, and I've realized, like, she's going to be 17 when she's already off to university to post-secondary if she completes in four years. And to ask a 17-year-old, what is it you want to do with the rest of your life? That's that is a big ask.
6: Well, this is this is exactly sort of what this series hopes to uh, shed some light on, because I think counselors have this amazing ability if they can get in the room with students on a one-on-one basis and ask them questions that maybe their parents or their peers aren't really asking them you know beyond what are you interested in what do you dislike about school it's what do you see yourself doing where do you want to make a change what what how do you see yourself um you know moving forward in the world and without those conversations yeah a lot of students uh when they get to that point they they either don't know what to do or they make the wrong decision
1: where are we going next with this series
6: so um, next week, we're going to take a look at the difference between college and university, how to pick between the two, and the stigma that still exists around picking college over university.
1: And isn't that interesting? Because recently we had a report that shows, you know, if you were to get a diploma or a degree from actually the the, the differentiation was a degree from a college, like a, an applied degree, that you would make more money within the first five years than actually having a degree from you know U of T, like I say, in humanities.
6: Yeah, I think you know the research we've done. It's interesting. I think it's different for every student on an individual level. But um, college offers career integrated learning and hands on support. So I I think for a lot of kids that is a a better way to go. But it'll be interesting. We'll see how that plays out in next week's story.
1: Megan, looking forward to seeing it. And you can read that series on globalnews.ca. Failure to launch: A look at why kids are having such trouble getting out of the houses, getting out of the parents' houses and establishing themselves as they get going. Thanks again, Megan. Appreciate you being Thanks so here. much. All right. We're keeping an eye on some breaking news from the OPP. We're getting some updates now on what's going on with Kevin O'Leary Going to get more on that. That's coming up in our news block in just a couple of minutes. We're just uh, getting confirmation on that. Stay tuned. More details from the OPP on that Kevin O'Leary situation. Or breaking now, Kevin O'Leary's wife, Linda. Now, I've just got details just coming in right now. Kevin O'Leary's wife, Linda, has been charged with careless operation of a vessel in connection with that deadly boat crash on Lake Joseph last month. This is according to the OPP. New York man Richard Rue has been charged with failing to exhibit navigation lights while underway in that crash. Breaking news, Kevin O'Leary's wife, Linda, has been charged with careless operation of a vessel in connection with that deadly boat crash on Lake Joseph. And, of course, you may recall that in the wake of that, Mr. O'Leary put out a statement that many considered to be at least misleading, which was he blamed the other operator for not having any lights on. And as you can see here from this new release from the OPP, it appears that the other operator did not have navigation lights on, when that crash occurred, the, the word is, is that they were out in the middle of the lake gazing at stars and they had turned off all the lights and all the navigation on the boat. And that is what led to that tragedy. More updates on that coming up here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. But Fearless Fred is with us in studio and he's going to talk about being a superhero for a great cause this weekend. What's the deal? It's the Heroes Challenge for
0: uh, Children's Wish, and it's a it's like a Survivor esque event that goes down uh, on the islands. They've done it at a few other places, but past few years has been on the islands, and you get a whole bunch of teams, and we do a whole bunch of fundraising for Children's Wish, and then you're paired up with a child, a wish child uh, from Children's Wish, and then you compete in all kinds of events for absolute supremacy, and we. Team excellence, as we go by, uh, have a consistent Te- team excellence. Team excellence.
1: Do you we spell have, that the regular way,
0: or is it like triple X excellence? No, it's it's not the '90s. It's not a energy drink commercial. This is legit. <laughs> okay, this is legit. Uh, we have consistently come in second last for the last three years in a row, and this year, aim low. Third last. I Third, like it. That's where we're going. Third last. Watch out, Team Volkswagen. We're coming after you. Hey, if
1: people want to get involved, what do you got?
0: Uh, just go to Children's Wish Ontario. Uh, there, if you wanted to, we've been posting a lot about it on the uh, QN07 Twitter feed, and uh, we're still looking for anybody who wants to make a donation. I I, I can tell you... When you go there, it's very easy to get cynical uh, in the world that we live in today, and uh, you get kind of like caught up in your own problems. But when you go to an event like this and you, and you see the families involved and the children uh, that are dealing with some pretty, pretty heinous situations uh, and just the power that like one wish can have on this kid uh, in terms of their positivity and just giving them something to look forward to. Cause a lot of these children are dealing treatment after treatment after treatment. And then if you can take your mind off of that, Onto something else. It's absolutely incredible. That's why I'm such a big supporter of Children's Wish. Just my experience.
1: And 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 these kids are the real superheroes, aren't they? They're, oh, they're. absolutely.
0: They're the heroes. And
1: I want to with superheroes because I know you're a big superhero fan. I got superhero trivia for you. Okay, right go here. On. Okay. Lay it on me. Question is whether or not Fearless Fred is truly nerd. nerd! Here we go. What does the Joker repeatedly ask for? From police officers while being held in jail during the dark night. Uh, A phone call? His one phone call. That is correct. What is Superman's real name? Kal-El or Clark Kent? Kal-El is correct, sir. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Let me give it to him one more time. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Who is Captain America's arch nemesis?
0: The Red Skull or Baron Zemo. Either one of those would be correct.
1: Which three actors have played the Hulk in feature-length films within the past decade? Eric Bana, Edward Norton, and um,
0: what's-his-face, the good-looking guy. No, I wasn't in it. (laughs) (laughs) Always forget his name, but he's a really good dude. Mark Ruffalo. (laughs) Yeah, that's the guy,
1: that's the guy. (laughs) Who is the only non-Jedi in the original Star Wars trilogy to use a lightsaber?
0: Uh... I think, uh, doesn't Han Solo use it when he cuts open the Tauntaun?
1: Han Solo is the only non-Jedi in the original Star Wars trilogy to ever use a lightsaber when he cuts open the Tauntaun's belly in The Empire Strikes. <laughs> <laughs> so good. What? Uh, who is the only Star Trek actor to also appear in Star Wars? Uh, I don't know, actually.
0: I'm actually, I'm stumped on that one. George Takai.
1: Yes, sir. No!